Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Adam Michaels, the chairman and CEO of Mama's Creations, a $140 million market cap company that provides products to the deli aisle of large food retailers. Adam became CEO in 2022 after spending about nine years at the large consumer packaging company Mondelez. I met Adam at a recent investment conference and wanted to have him on the podcast to discuss why he decided to take the role of CEO, the playbook he has brought from Mondelez and its applicability at Mama's, why there's such a large opportunity for the company to more deeply penetrate the deli aisle, the strategy surrounding further expanding its distribution footprint, and the target financial profile of the company once it starts to scale. For full disclosure, I am not a Mama shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Mama Creations Chairman and CEO, Adam Michaels. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Adam, you took over as CEO in the fall of 2022, you spent about nine years at CPG company Mondelez before coming to Mama's Creations. What was the impetus for leaving and joining this company? No, thanks, Ben. Uh, no, I mean, look, you know, I, after the first uh, couple of meetings, I came back uh, from speaking to members of the, the company and taking a tour. And the first thing, actually, I went back to my wife and I said, if uh, if Mondelez, which, you know, at the time I was helping to run North American M&A at Mondelez, if Mondelez was in the deli space, which it is not, this is exactly the company that I would have bought. So there's just something really special about that, you know, founder led. There really is a Dan Mancini. Uh, I get to hang out with him all of the time. Um, this is exactly where the consumer's going. The fresh, clean, easy to prepare trends in the deli. Um, so I found this really special company, which you can't replicate. You can't replicate Dan and, and, and that history in the place where consumers are going. 
And quite honestly, I thought there was a lot that I could uh, bring to the company to really take it to the next level. So I think that trifecta really made it very attractive. And we're going to get into a lot of that uh, going forward as we go through this interview. But I'm interested in, you know, kind of the first year, right? You you get wine and dine. They serve you some meatballs and they say, oh, this, is what, <laughs> this is what your life is going to be like. <laughs> and I'm interested in like what you found versus what you thought and kind of what your first year focus is, has been. No, it's been uh, the old cliche, drinking through a fire hose. Uh, but I would actually tell you, it's actually even better than I expected. And I'm so proud of the team. We're probably, sorry, I, I'm ahead of where actually I thought we would be. So I think the first thing is just the team is everything. The people that have been here, the people that we brought on uh, to join this team has really exceeded all of my expectations. We are really pulling the wagon together. Um, so I think that's one piece of it. And then the second piece is quite honestly, like I mentioned, I didn't think that uh, we put the controls in place as quickly as we have. Anthony Gruber, CFO that we brought in, Peter Monch, our controller, the, just the foundation is there, which is awesome. Uh, what we've been able to do from an operational perspective, I came in, gross margins were 12%. We announced earnings a couple of weeks ago more than 30%. Uh, what the operations team is doing, Rebecca in logistics and Mary Jo uh, running our uh, accounts receivables, cash conversion cycle being negative. Um, it's just absolutely spectacular from the operations perspective. And now the excitement is now our sales and marketing team is now really able, now that we have the business humming, now our sales and marketing team can take it to the next level, bringing in Lauren Sella as our chief marketing officer, everyone from our sales team, Nick Powers is our amazing leading our trade promotion strategies. <laughs> I love it. If you promise not to tell our board, I would do this job for free. It's incredible. I'm really having a blast. Yeah. Oh, never say that in front of board members. Unless, no, no. You, oh, you oh, told oh. me it's not on camera, so we're okay. <laughs> uh so that's interesting. I mean, that that sounds okay. So I'm, you know, I'll put my skeptical investor hat on and say that sounds like a lot of change in a very short period of time. I mean, how broadly was that accomplished? I mean, margins expanding that fast, the work, the the the, the working capital cycle changing. What what specifically has been done to change the direction there? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things. So I think the first one is we're doing it together. So literally together every Monday morning. Never call me from ten to eleven a.m. Our leadership team gets together and we decide on everything then. So literally as a leadership team, we all know what's going on at all times. So we, we run the company as a family. So that's one piece of it. In parallel to that, we have monthly management teams. So sort of let's call it the top 50 or so people in the company. Again, we're a family. We're pulling the wagon together. So that first piece, you're absolutely right. There has been a lot of change but we're doing the change together. So that's really one important thing. <clears throat> the next one is we have a clear plan. So we talk about our three C strategy, right? Around costs, controls, and culture. We're very methodical and we do one thing at a time. We actually do three things at a time, but you don't get to do the fourth thing until one of those first three things are done. So we are very measured. First was all about controls. Second, was about manager, right? We spoke about our building our finance team. The second piece was about the costs. 
managing our operations, right? We did not. I could have very easily supercharged the sales team on day one. No, that doesn't work. We didn't know all of our numbers. We didn't have good margins. So it's very methodical how we're doing it. So yes, was there a lot of change? But we did it together. We did it in a very organized fashion. And the last piece is we measured. What gets measured gets improved. We had clear KPIs. We all looked at those KPIs together so we know how we were progressing against that change. And you may have touched on this a little bit in that response, but I'm always attracted to situations where a big company person joins a smaller company. There are often opportunities to bring best pack practices from the larger company. Maybe you can talk about some examples of where that's the case at this company. Oh, how much time do you got? Um, no, I, look, I've been very lucky. So I've been able to be, I, uh, I found my calling, you know, 20 plus years ago. I am in love with food and beverage. I would rather be the lowest man on the totem pole in a food company versus the number one guy at a high tech company. I have found my dream industry. I've been able to get tremendous learnings from my time as, as a consultant, right? I got to see different companies all the time, all over the world. PepsiCo is a big client of mine. Easily 25 projects all over the world I got to do with them. And you get to experience both culturally, both the particular um, projects. You get that diversity of thought, thinking, ideas. That's wonderful. Getting to work at Mondelez. But again, yes, I got to work at the billion and a half dollar Oreo brand or billion dollar rich brand. But I got to work at, you know, I had the opportunity to work with Hugh Chocolate. I think they were maybe $10 million when I first started. So you name it, I've had that diversity again of the types of products, the size, where they were on their life cycle. That has been really wonderful. And then everywhere. Look, we, I mentioned earlier, cash conversion cycle. I don't know how many small cap companies actually even know what cash conversion cycle is, let alone having a negative one. This company has a negative cash conversion cycle. That means we're bringing in money Accounts receivables actually at a faster rate than we're giving out money. Why? Because cash is king. What gets measured gets improved. Managing inventory level. These are things that, yeah, maybe I shouldn't know them. Maybe the size of this company shouldn't be worried about them. But I'll tell you, it's pretty special when I think I had, when I first started, we had under a million dollars of cash. Now we have over $5 million of cash, more than $5 million of credit lines. Our bank just keeps offering us money. I don't know what to do with all of the money, but my CFO says when, when you have low-cost money, you say thank you. Uh, may I have some more? Um, I, I've never felt so good. I mean, we had north of $15 million uh, when I first got here of debt. Now we acquired a company this summer, and we still have close to 10, only $10 million of debt. So our, our shareholders' equity is going up, our debt is going down, cash is going up, margin is going up, revenues are going up. It, uh, it, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And one of the things that's special about Mondelez is that it has some incredible brands, and you mentioned some of those, Oreo and Ritz and you know, Chips Ahoy as well. What did you learn about the importance and value of brands during your time there, and how does that translate to Mama's? Yeah, it's great. It's, you know, and I, and I, we, we talk often about the power of the ant. So without a doubt, I love brands. I've been brought up with brands. Uh, the power of the brands are so important. And we're doing and we're growing. 
Lauren Sella, our chief market officer, her number one job is to build the Mama Mancini's brand, start up this Mama's Creations brand because we're now selling, <laughs> we're selling cilantro lime shrimp, Japanese teriyaki chicken wraps, uh, Mexican street tacos. Obviously, Mama Mancini's orange chicken doesn't sound that 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 appropriate. So, um, so we are absolutely building a brand, investing in our brand next year. We will never, it will be the most we ever spend on our brands from a marketing and trade perspective. However, uh, I was very lucky. I actually had the opportunity to acquire a brand called Give and Go uh, with Mondelez, I don't know, maybe three or so years ago. Um, and that was the first time that I really uh, got to learn and experience and help uh, lead, you know, accelerate the strategy of. This, this branded and private label business. So I got years of experience understanding how it's not just the consumer, right? You and me at the store at the, the, the point of decision, but the point of purchase, but also how do you work? How is the retailer as important to you, right? Because you're making the retailer's job easier. That really helped me a lot. The years I got to do that really helped me prepare myself for the deli business. Because, yes, I absolutely care that you're attracted to the chicken parm or the chana masala or the uh, paninis or wraps or olives in the deli space. But I also care about what I can do for the retailer, the buyer, to make his or her job easier. So today, the deli buyer has to speak to 25 different people. There's the beef guy, the chicken guy, the, 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 the salad guy, the pasta guy, the olive guy, the sandwich guy. And it's a lot of work. That means that there's 25 trucks coming every day to the store. There's 25 invoices that have to be filled out. There's 25 purchase orders. There's 25 calls you have to make because something's late. Or you could call one guy, Mama's Creations, because they give you the meatballs and meatloaf and sausage and peppers. They give you the balsamic chicken and chicken strips and breaded chicken. They give you the Mediterranean farro, Israeli couscous, Persian rice. They give you the paninis, the Nashville hot paninis, the buffalo chicken wraps, the olives. And it makes their job easier. So just as much as I care about exciting and delighting our end consumers, I equally want to create value for our retailers. So are you telling me that all that wonderful food we see in the deli case is not made at the store? Maybe you can talk about some common misconceptions, you know, maybe grocery store customers have about the goods they see in the deli case. Yes. Again, let's make sure my, my kids aren't listening. There is no tooth fairy. I apologize. Uh, there is Santa, but there's no tooth fairy. Um, but yeah, look, um, it's been an evolution. So, and I'll make up all the years because I don't know them. But you know, a hundred years ago, yes, every there was a there was a kitchen behind that glass in the deli, and at three o'clock in the morning, and I'm making this all up. At three o'clock in the morning, they were getting in there early and making the potato salad and making the grilling the chicken and braising the meatballs for six hours. Yes, that is exactly what happened. Um, fun fact. I don't remember the year, but Piggly Wiggly, which is always, I just really like the name Piggly Wiggly, which is a retailer. They were the first people to, uh, you could actually get your own groceries before you used to go to the counter and used to, they used to bring you the loaf of bread and everything. Um, but yeah, so that was back in the day. Then all the retailers realized, wait a minute, 
this is not very efficient. Let's centralize it and create these commissaries. And then, you know, mostly with COVID and certainly COVID accelerated it. Now I can't even get people to, to uh, staff my commissary. So now let me get somewhere else. So, so yes, you know, Whole Foods makes the best meatballs that are, you know, handmade and blah, blah, blah. No, we actually make all the Whole Foods meatballs in the country. Um, but that's fine. And some customers, uh, fresh market, even behind the glass, it says Mama Mancini's meatballs because they found, they did their own research to find when it said Mama Mancini's meatballs, actually they sold better than when it just said beef meatballs. So some customers, even behind the glass, want to call them Mama Mancini's. Others, like Whole Foods or, or others, um, want it to be private label. Others, Publix, actually is private label. We make uh, the, the uh, pub subs are called, the meatball subs. Supposedly, I'm told that actually Publix stores, store for store, sells more meatball subs than Subway does. Again, store for store, which is pretty wild. So, yes, those public uh, pub subs, those are private label. Yet, there's half a dozen items right below it where it has all the deli items, the chicken uh, fettuccine Alfredo, the lasagna roll-ups, the sausage and peppers, the beef meatballs, all say Mama Mancini's on it. So Publix has that hybrid of half of our items are branded and other half are private label in the exact same store. So it's up to the customer. It goes back to my last answer, which is I, I am a partner for the retailer. I want you, the retailer, to be successful because if you're successful, we're successful, and the consumer is delighted. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And I want to talk a little bit about strategy here because when we met, you suggested you're using the playbook that was employed at Mondelez, especially within Give and Go, to gain share in the bakery section of grocery stores. You're trying to do the same thing within Delhi at this company. To me, maybe as a naive outsider, the Delhi and bakery would seem to be sort of different. What is what does that playbook entail? And maybe you can talk about similarities and differences between the Delhi and the bakery. Yeah, look, so first of all, I'm all about dealing with pride of the past, you know, 25 years of experience that I've had. I, I will tell you, I still am very lucky enough. When I first started, I, my first job out of school was with Capital One Financial, which I'm sure you've heard of and all of your listeners have heard of. I promise you back in the late 90s, zero of you had heard of Capital One Bank. It's pretty much a, it was a credit card company. I wouldn't even say it was a regional bank. We all fit in the cafeteria type thing. I got so lucky, Rich Fairbank, Nigel Morris, I got. I learned it. I still think about the stuff that they taught me uh, every day. Actually, one of the things Nigel Morris was the president, and COO. He gave me the great opportunity to uh, move abroad. I lived in Europe for a number of years, and I remember him asking me. I went over there. He said, "Adam, should we be in continental Europe? We had a small foothold in the UK, um, but should we get into continental Europe?" And it might sound silly, but his question was not get me into continental Europe said, should we be in continental Europe? And then while that sounds silly, to me, it gave me the freedom to say, you know what, maybe it's not a good idea. Now, look, ultimately we did it. 
gone to Italy, Spain, France. I then moved to France and ran their operation strategy there. But the, the, the opportunity to say no, to say it was not a good idea, was really important. So this is we're talking about 25 years ago. I still use that approach today. I never tell the team to do something. I ask the team, is this the right thing? Should we be doing it? What should we be doing? You know, another, uh, I think it's like a Steve Jobs uh, was speaking at some college 100 years ago, and they were asking him, like, what's the, you know, where do uh, executives trip up? And one his, his number one thing was, we hire these really smart people, and then we tell them exactly what to do. That doesn't seem right. So I am all about, you guys tell me where we should be doing. I'm, I'm hiring great people. Why should I be telling them what to do? They should be telling me what to do. And that's really stuck with me. So again, those best practices are going back 25 years that I'm literally applying every day. Got it. And then in terms of the, you know, maybe the learnings that, 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 that were specifically from the give and go experience, how are those, how are those being employed today to help, you know, kind of further, further penetrate the deli section? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of ones. So if we tell, you know, what are our top three? So I think one of them is, again, understanding the retailer. So I didn't fully appreciate that before. Everything I learned in Oreo was, how do I make the consumer happy, the end consumer? Mm. I think Give and Go is the first place where I really learned it's just as much about the retailer, possibly even more than uh, the consumer. And how do you seek to understand what the hindrances are, what the, the roadblocks are for uh, the buyer so you could you know, make those lives uh, easier and better for them. I think the second one that Give and Go and Joel Flat was the, is the CEO, I think what that team has done really well is just incredible focus on quality and service. So if you have great quality and great service, they started with this two-bite brownie, you get asked for more things. Hey, hey do, do, do you make croissants? Sure. Hey, hey, do you make cupcakes? Sure, we can make cupcakes. Hey, hey, can we make? And so I think the focus on exceptional quality and service, what we do at, here at Mama's, um, I think was the second one in putting an incredible focus on that. And then I think the third and the last one, and you think you're, and you're seeing it here, uh, I spoke about it in my last earnings call, is investment in our business, investment in people. That was a big thing. You know, I think we did, a, you know, the team did a great job at Give and Go. Investment in capabilities uh, and, and infrastructure and automation. You know, I remember going up to Canada when we were doing the due diligence and hitting all of their different facilities. There was something really, you, you clearly saw they were investing in the future. We made the largest, I, I told at our last earnings call, I got approval from the board for the largest capital investment ever in this company's history all paid for from cash flow from operations. I hate paying interest. All of it paid for from cash flow from operations. And that's what you're seeing. And I think you're going to get, you're going to really reap, we are going to reap the uh, rewards on adding this automation to really reduce our, to, to improve our gross margins even more. Since you brought it up, maybe you can talk about that CapEx spend. Where's it going? What's, you know, kind of, what kind of returns do you hope to get? Like what's, What's the, I think we, when we met, you talked about adding additional capacity because you're expecting to have more, more demand. Maybe talk a little bit about that, where the, all that um, spending's going. Yeah, so three buckets. So I think the first one um, is more capacity. So again, I don't know uh, what 
the uh, my 330 million friends in the U.S. are doing with all of our chicken, but they just keep buying uh, a boatload of chicken. So we're actually adding more grills. Uh, these are, you know, the grills that we use are, I don't know, 60 feet long, 50, 60 feet long. They're linear grills. They they cook the exact way that you cook in your backyard, just, you know, 100 times longer. But it's exactly the same way. That's why it tastes so good. Uh, I don't know if you know, going back to the tooth fairy, which we just identified on this podcast, that there's no tooth fairy. Some stupid number. I've heard numbers like 80% of chicken that you eat with the grill marks in the, this country, they're actually painted on. They use actually a ceramic wheel. It's actually fake grill marks. I'm sorry. Again, there still is a Santa. But yes, we do it the real way. Literally, it's the same grills. They haven't been cleaned in 850 years because you all know that's the best tasting grills. Brand new grills never taste good. Um, so, so the first one piece is getting more capacity. The second one is getting uh, more automation. So if you came, you're always welcome to, we own two, we have two facilities. As a reminder to everybody, we manufacture all of our own products. We don't work with Comans or uh, others. Um, let's just say there's opportunities for improvement on automation, <laughs> uh, which again, I always look at positively because the gross margin, you're going to need a rocket ship to get to what our gross margin is going to look like. But the second piece is getting more automation, more depositors, packing lines to actually reduce our costs uh, and be more efficient with the, the, the human capital, human resources that we use. So that's number two. And then the third and the last one is the one I love the most, which is we're going to move earlier in the value chain. So today, uh, our chicken comes, for instance, uh, pre-cut and pre-tumbled. If I were just to make things really simple, imagine a chicken breast. And I'll make up all these numbers. They're eight ounces today. We pay somebody to cut it in half to two, two, two four ounce pieces. I don't know if you know about the, you know, the business school uh, pickle case study. You know, the cost of sliced pickles is exponentially higher than a whole pickle. You pay for per, per cut. The same thing happens in the commodity space. So right now we're paying someone else a thousand. You know, I'm making up all these numbers. Thousand dollars to do a one dollar cost job by cutting and trimming, we're bringing that in-house. We're buying the trimmers and uh, tumblers ourselves, not a lot of money, and we're going to see dramatic improvement in gross margin. So capacity, uh, automation, and moving earlier in the value chain. And we've touched on cost a fair amount and efficiencies and kind of like bringing some best practices to this company. What's kind of struck me is when I started looking at this company was how fast the revenue growth has been in recent times. Maybe talk, taking a step back a little bit, talk a little bit about, you say there's a lot of demand, but you have to create demand. So what do you attribute the fast revenue growth the company's seen reason, recently to? So another old Warren Buffett quote, you know, when you see a manager with a good reputation meets an industry with a bad reputation, it's the industry that keeps its reputation. You heard that one before. So I am all about riding the wave. I don't need to create waves. I guess I do that at home with my family, but I, uh, I'm all about riding the waves. And the wave, the biggest wave you see in food and beverage today is consumers looking for fresher, cleaner, easier to prepare meals. I am all about just having a better boat 
and hopefully a better set of uh, navigators and captains to just do a better job than everyone else. And that's what we're seeing today in the Delhi space. The Delhi space is a $45 billion category. 25, actually 30 billion of that is where we play. We play in sort of the prepared foods and entertainment uh, space. 15 billion is the, you know, sliced deli meats and deli cheeses. That's actually a declining part of the business. But this $30 billion is growing. The data just came out last week. It's under here. Um, the category is actually growing in volume. I'm going to say that again. The category is actually growing in volume. Like very few categories are doing that today, right? You all know it's all pricing driven. So this is a category that everyone's going to. Why? Well, it's a flywheel effect. So the first thing is consumers don't want to eat out any, as much anymore. I talk about that all the time. That's our competitor. It's not the guy to the right and left of me. It's actually the, the fancy restaurant that you go to. People don't want to eat out anymore. It's creating more demand. Even if I don't want to eat out anymore, I still don't have six hours to braise my meatballs. And they're going to the stores, to the, the prepared food set, fresh, clean, easy to prepare. It's a flywheel. So what's happening is because of the demand, retailers see that demand, very profitable. So that category, that space in the uh, store has like 50% margins versus meat or center aisle, 40 or 30% margins. So they get more money. So they add more shelf space to it. What does that do? That gets more people interested in it because now it's not just the old school spaghetti and meatballs. Now it's Indian chana masala and Japanese teriyaki and uh, you know all these different types of meals, Taco Tuesday and all these things, General Tso's chicken. So it gets more interest, which adds more shelf space to it. And it's a flywheel. It's, just a, it's a, a vicious loop of increasing strength. So I just saw a, um, some research that just came out. 75% of retailers say they're adding more shelf space to the prepared food set next year. So I'm just riding a wave that someone else created, and I thank him or her. But this is a wave that uh, we're just going to ride better than others. So that makes sense in terms of the uh, kind of increased opportunities within existing partners. I'd love to talk a little bit about your distribution footprint and then the opportunity to you know, expand the number of partners you have. Maybe let's talk, you've mentioned some customers, but maybe talk just broadly about where people can find your products, either private label or the branded versions today. Um, well, I think, I think now we're in uh, all 50 states. So we're national. So every BJ's in America, every Sam's Club in America, uh, we're in four of the eight Costco regions. We're out west in Albertsons, in the East Coast with Ahold, down south with Publix. So you name it, uh, we are there. Where the real opportunity is, is to get um, deeper penetration in those markets. So I speak often on the calls about AIC, average items carried. When I first started, we had five items per store. That means just your average store you walk into, there's five Mama's products there. We, uh, in short period of time that I've been here, we're up to seven already. And I'm not going to, I'm going to be embarrassed until we hit 27. There is no reason why we don't have three of our uh, meat products in there, meatballs, meatloaf, sausage and peppers, why we don't have three of our chicken items in there, balsamic chicken, breaded chicken, chicken strips, why we don't have 
three of our green salads, three of our grain salads, Mediterranean farro, Israeli couscous, Persian rice, three of our paninis, my favorite, Nashville hot paninis, buffalo chicken wrap paninis. Why we don't have three of our um, wraps, grilled vegetable wrap. Uh, we have a, you know, a really gr a great teriyaki uh, chicken wrap. Three of our olives. So what I named seven, eight uh, different categories. Eight times three is twenty-four. All of those things I just named are our existing products today. We don't have to do any innovation to get to that twenty-seven number, uh, which you know I'm just making up that rough number. But that's where we should be. We should be way closer to twenty-seven than we should to seven, uh, far and away. So yeah, great distribution. Um, that said, um, the three biggest retailers in the country. Walmart, Target, Kroger, we have a whopping total of zero sales in Walmart, Kroger, and Target. So uh, again, in my olden days, I had real issues and real concern, and I lost lots of sleep at night. How do I make Oreo grow faster when I'm already in 98% distribution and more than 50% household penetration? I do not have that problem today. There is tons of opportunity for growth and distribution but even more important opportunity for the distribution we have to have depth of distribu distribution. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Two, two parts to that, specifically the strategy surrounding building out your customer base in terms of like adding new logos. And then specifically, if you want to talk about how you would attack Walmart, Target, and Kroger, see how do you develop relationships there so that you can get your foot in the door? Yeah. So, you know, for the first three, you know, the uh, Kroger, Walmart and Target. First thing I did when I got here. Hey, what's going on here? We've hired brand new brokers, already got meetings, already sending samples. So we're well on our way. Uh, it's you know, always takes work, but uh, this is a great time to be doing it. They, they make decisions towards the end of this year that starts early part of next year. So we're in absolutely the perfect spot for that. Uh, for the rest of the places, look, it's about building a team, right? So when I started, we had, I think, one salesperson. Uh, today, I think we're up to eight. Um, so we brought in real talent. Uh, we brought in um, great guy, Tony, to lead our West Coast operations. Um, I'll tell you guys all a secret. Uh, we just actually hired our first ever head of uh, T-Store sales. Uh, so we did that. Uh, we're talking to to a couple of folks on e-commerce. Um, I told you I mentioned earlier that uh, we have uh, now we have a, a head of uh, trade promotion, uh, our first ever chief marketing officer. So we're building the sales and marketing capability, which is going to accelerate right that that three uh, piece plan, drive velocities of existing products, get more items into existing customers and then get into new customers. So the team's doing a great job. We actually have, uh, obviously we speak 24 hours a day together, but we have formal monthly connects. Uh, so we share best practices with each other. We help each other out. We're all one team. Uh, one thing that's really, really important um, to make sure that I uh, highlight is we all row the boat together. So one thing that was not quite there before I got here, but it is now as a leadership team, we each have six goals. Three of those goals are three team goals. That means no one gets their bonus unless we all get our bonus for the, for that's 50%. 50% of our bonus 
is three team goals that we can, we can't do on our own. We have to help each other out. Now we're all pulling the wagon together. The other three are independent individual goals. Obviously, the sales team has a different type of goal than the ops team than the marketing team. But um, that's what's really helped a lot. We're all pulling the wagon together, and that's where I see that it's working. It really, it's just awesome. Uh, so yeah. And you mentioned C stores in your previous response, and that seems to me like a space where there needs to be a huge upgrade in terms of the prepared food options. I think most people look at the prepared food there and think, like, I don't think I'd ever eat that. What are you talking? Um, you don't think that mystery me. meat on the roller that's been there? Since oh, the George Seven Eleven mystery meat. So oh how my does? God, you're missing I mean, that's the, obviously like the big grocers, the big names. Everyone knows those, but there are you know thousands and thousands of C stores out there. Talk to me about. How, how you penetrate that area more. So uh, what's the old saying? You can take the guy out of snacking, but you can't take the snacking out of the guy. So two of the items that uh, we've been working together on uh, since I've joined is our meatballs in a cup solution. So we have meatballs, we have uh, turkey meatballs, feta salad, sausage and peppers, chicken cacciatore. So this whole in a cup solution, super easy, uh, 21 day shelf life, which is wonderful. Think of this as in the island of 7-Eleven or Wawa. Yes, instead of eating whatever that stuff is behind the glass, whatever, instead of eating a baby Ruth, which are good, but not a meal, here you get yourself, you know, 23 grams of protein, a warm meal, pop this in the microwave. Every C-store has a microwave, two and a half minutes, and you got yourself a hearty meal that's really fresh and clean. Again, really important. Things like our meatballs, we're a... I don't know, I got to come up with a better word for premium, but this is legit. So our meatballs, literally, the only thing in here, six ingredients, literally, ground beef, imported, the expensive stuff, imported Pecorino Romano cheese, onions, parsley, uh, breadcrumbs, and whole egg. There's literally six, uh, I lied to you, salt and pepper. I don't count those. That's six ingredients total. That's the only stuff that's in our meatballs. So this is a great, great solution on the go. Another one that I'm really excited about is I told you about all the chicken that we're making. We created a sort of on-the-go, grab-and-go. I actually like our chicken. Uh, don't tell anybody. But I actually like our chicken cold. So they're strips, and I just eat it as a snack. Like, this is my midday snack. Um, so, again, super clean, uh, easy, to you know, easy to prepare is just start eating it. Obviously, you know, other people put it, my kids put it on their salads. Um, but it's great. So these are just two great examples of, tr these are perfect for the C-Store opportunity. And again, today we have zero sales. So that sounds pretty incremental uh, as we continue to go more and more into the C-Store space. For anybody listening over audio versus watching the video, I think we just had our first compounders product placement and <laughs> uh, that just happened. Um, that was cool. Thank you for that. And so if I'm looking at your penetration looks like, you know, obviously this is a, this is an East coast based company. So maybe that's a history. So, and West coast looks like it's just developing. Are there any cultural or taste preferences that would make it hard for you to gain more distribution in places like California? Yeah, no. Uh, and again, it's really important. So we are national today. So again, as we speak, if you go into the LA Costco, you're going to see, and again, for those, I apologize, that are not on the uh, the podcast, but, you know, you'd see this three-pound meatball. This is in L.A. as we speak. Earlier this year, we were in uh, the Pacific Northwest. 
Um, so we are national. Um, yes, we do have more of our sales in the every quarter. The southeast and the northeast fight for who has more sales, um, but we are a, a national player. Um, no, you know, I think we see it. Uh, what's What's wonderful about our products, and this is something that uh, I don't think I fully appreciated since you know I've always been in the world of kombucha or refrigerated nutrition bars. These are sort of on the vanguard type products. Everybody, extra credit to uh, to you guys. Who of our 330 million friends in the United States are not going to eat our beef products? And if not our beef products, they'll eat our chicken products. And if not our chicken products, our salad products. And if not our salad products, our pasta products. And if not our pasta products, our olive products, our sandwich products. You know, so... I really, truly believe there's not a single person in the country that wouldn't eat one of our products. So, again, going back to the strategy and what our company has become, we are the one-stop shop deli solution, which means we are meeting all of your needs or any one of your needs, depending on the day. And, again, don't tell Dan. Please make sure Dan's not listening. I can't eat uh, Italian food 21 meals a week, right? I just can't do it. Dan can. I cannot. I like the variety. So I might accidentally, again, don't tell anyone, go into Chef Chris's uh, refrigerator and accidentally try the Indian food or try the, the Chinese food or try the Mexican food or try. We, we have it all. My, my new favorite, we make this amazing uh, Korean style barbecue meatballs over a bed of rice. And I'm telling you, he's doing something special because he, like, sprinkles these sesame seeds on the product. Like, it's just so mean that he's doing this to me. Uh, and it's incredible. It really is uh, super, uh, super awesome. So that variety, that's what's really uh, what makes the company so special. We have a taste for everybody. And I know you said that your competitors, you know, kind of eating out or, and it's not really who the other suppliers are to the deli, but I'm interested, is there a one-stop shop? I mean, does, does Cisco or any of the other players like kind of come with a big truck and, and, and penetrate there? Like who, who, who else is in this space that could conceptually try to be a one-stop shop? I don't know anybody. Actually, you tell me. Actually, I'll give you three questions. So the first one is, can you tell me another publicly traded deli company other than Mom's? No, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, though, right? There's plenty of private private players in every industry. No, 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 absolutely, without a doubt. But these, this sort of three things. One, name another publicly traded company. And again, that does mean something, good or bad, because, you know, I uh, am lucky enough that every day at 4 o'clock, I get a report card on how well I'm doing, right? And then every You and every you, investment professional, right? Right, but not all the private companies. And again, that means that 100% of all the other deli companies are not worried about that, or they're not worried about their quarterly numbers, or they're not worried about hitting certain growth targets. You know what? I'm a private company. I'm a little tired this quarter. No biggie. doesn't matter. I don't need to hit any numbers. I like where I am. I don't need to grow. I'm good at where I am at $200 million, which is awesome for them. As an investor, though, you kind of like the fact that you're putting you know, my feet to, my fire, to the fire every quarter. Um, so the first piece is, Name another privately tra uh, publicly traded company. The second one is it's a massively fragmented industry. So I can name four, maybe five. I'll give you credit if you can name more than six. 
billion dollar brands. It's not. It's all the entire industry is fragmented with one to three hundred million dollar businesses. Again, I like making potato salad. I'm good at it, and I make enough money for my private family to to uh, live a great life. I don't need to expand. I don't need to be the one stop shop. That sounds hard. I don't. I don't need that. So I think that confluence and a little long winded to explain to you why I don't believe there is a one-stop shop player today and why yeah and why it, it may be a bit of a uh unique strategy interesting and you talked a little bit about the margin profile as company how it's already changed i'm interested in trying to understand as as you hit the scale that you hope to get to what does the financial profile of this company look like um, obviously not asking for guidance, more so just illustrative, like if you hit where you where you think you can get to in terms of top line. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that we've shared on our earnings call. The first one is my first year, and that's where I am. I'm just finishing up. My first year, the focus, I had three focus, three foci, foci, focus, three focus areas. One, margin, two, margin, and three, margin. So that was the first thing. The first year was about the controls, putting the controls in place, putting managing our costs, uh, build, changing our pricing, our, our portfolio. And I think we've done a pretty okay job of that. Again, from 12% to 30%. Um, I apologize. I, I said uh, high 20s. I apologize. I, uh, I hit you know 30.3 last quarter. Sorry for over-delivering. But I'm still staying with, you know, the high 20s. Long term, we should be in the, um, the 30s. I will tell you, and I'm just going to make up a number, there's still tons more. So, again, I'm making this number up. If I told you there's 10 more points of margin, I want to reinvest that into gross net and trade. So I like this 30% number. I don't need it to be, uh, you know, much more than that because I want to take every dollar. I'm not stopping reducing saving. I'm going to keep driving down cogs, but I want to give even more rocket fuel to Nick and to Lauren to uh, drive our gross to net. So that's what I've shared from a gross uh, margin perspective. Down at net income, we're, you know, obviously before I got here, we were negative. Uh, we've been in the mid single digits, what I've been saying. And I think in time, we could get to that 10% number. Again, we keep doing better and better every single quarter. Uh, we've been we've sequentially grown every percentage wise every single quarter that uh, the team and I have been working together on this, and I think that ten percent number feels pretty good. And then I think from an you know uh, an EBITDA perspective, I think we've said long term we should be in the the teens, uh, the mid uh, the mid teens, maybe a little, a little higher. So that's what we've been sharing from a uh, perspective on margin. Uh, from a revenue perspective. I really want to wait to see, you know, I told you 50%, literally more than 50% of the sales and marketing team are new. Um, we have our first um, strategy uh, annual strat planning session, actually the first week in November, which I'm very excited. And then we'll share that with the board in December. Um, I want to see what they come back and tell me. Uh, what I know is that every quarter that I've been here, we have beaten the market and we have gained share. The category is growing in, let's call it mid-single digits, uh, maybe even higher single digits. And we have beaten the, the, uh, 
the industry every single quarter. And I expected that we will continue to do that going forward. And are there certain products that would shift the margins up or down? Like if you guys got really big into salad versus proteins versus pasta, I just eat, like, I just think about your cost of goods sold meat being a lot of obviously like commodities and, and ingredients. Is it, do you, do you have enough scale and the variety is so big that like one, however big one gets, it's not such a big deal in terms of dragging margins either direction or, or, or is there something that we should think about going forward if, um, you know, that this is just inherently higher or lower gross margin category? No, I'm, uh, I'm not bashful about asking uh, for a price that we deserve. Again, we are, I am proud. We are, again, I, I wish there was a better word than premium, but I'll call it a premium player. We are not trying to be spam. There are some customers, some, sorry, some competitors that their retail price is actually lower than our input costs. I'm not proud of that. That's not grandma quality. Or sorry, the opposite. I am really proud of that. And I know what they're doing is not grandma quality. So uh, we are very good about asking for the prices we need. And we try to keep all of our products roughly in line from a margin perspective. So okay. there's not one piece of our business that is a uh, loss leader that if too much of that happened, we'd be in trouble. Um, again, I do a, <laughs> a tremendous amount of nonprofit work, but I do that at night not during the day. And um, you've talked a lot about the family. You talk about their involvement and, and the history here. I'm interested in the current role, the fa founding family, the Mancini's currently play within the company. Yeah, no, Dan is a big piece of uh, the business. He's sort of the face uh, of our Mama Mancini's brand. Again, we have a broader Mama's creations, but uh, yeah, I mean, Dan's on QVC three times a week. Um, and, uh, Dan comes with us to, to key, uh, customer meetings if he's around, uh, he's not responsible for anything in the day-to-day -day business, but, uh, he's a great person to speak to. He's also great. My favorite meeting here, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. My favorite meeting, uh, each month is we have a grandma quality meeting. So our head chef, Dan and I sit down, we taste our, our existing products, make sure that they're staying grandma quality. And then we get to try new products. Again, this board suckers. I would take this job for free. That's much fun. Um, and that's my favorite. So Dan is, a, is, is, uh, is really the heart and soul of, uh, of our business and, uh, and keeps us, you know, grandma quality. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And I guess QC would be something that I would be concerned about potentially as an investor thinking about like as you add new facilities, new a lot of new people. I mean, I just, I, I start to worry that that kind of core family grandma style culture plus taste profile that it may not translate so well if you're opening up new places or Seattle or San Diego or something like that. How, you know, you're from a big company where there had to be a lot of QC across the, the portfolio. How do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, it's wonderful. So a couple of things. So the first one is there's nothing more important than quality uh, to us. And that's why we're so lucky that we manufacture everything ourselves. I don't have to trust a, a co-packer or a co-manufacturer. Everything is done ourselves in-house. So that's one. I think the second thing is great is um, we, so we just announced, we promoted two of our most senior operations executives, uh, Eric, um, runs our facilities in, in East Rutherford. He actually started, he actually used to run QA. So there is nothing more, put your money where your mouth is. The guy that runs the entire show literally came from QA. So that hopefully gives you a sense of how important that is to me and the rest of the leadership team. So I think that's uh, really important. And then the third one is, I mentioned to you earlier that we're constantly testing every single week, every single month. Actually, another thing is we actually have our own QA in-house. We built our own internal QA lab because it's so important. And not only is it important and we get to manage it properly, but also it is cheaper, right? Because today you have to actually send it out. You know, no normally a company would send it out. That's expensive. And what's even worse than that, more expensive, it takes days to get it back. We get it back in hours. So, uh, yeah, there's nothing more important than quality to us. And uh, by putting the people, by putting the infrastructure in place, we're proving it every day how uh, dedicated we are to it. I'd like to talk a little bit about corporate governance. And given that you are the CEO and the chairman of this company, I'm interested in why that is a right structure for shareholders. Is it a permanent versus temporary thing? Maybe talk a little bit about like board changes and you know how you see your role within the board going forward. Yeah, so I uh, I would happily for it to be uh, temporary. So uh, just as a little bit of background, so I came in. There was a chairman CEO. I took over uh, the CEO role, and uh, some months later, uh, the chairman uh, retired. And uh, the board asked me to take on the uh, chairman role. Um, I do see it as temporary. Um, you're already seeing that we brought some new board members who I'm super excited about. Uh, Megan Henson and Shirley Romig, these are leaders in their industries. I expect to bring in uh, some more board members. I really see the board as a group of mentors for my leadership team. So Megan is an accomplished CHRO. She helps Abby, who, who runs our HR. Shirley is a accomplished marketer. She helps Lauren as our CMO. So I really am looking for every board member to be a mentor for someone else, including myself. Um, so I really do see that as we bring in uh, new board members, I think it'd be great uh, in time, right? You don't want to bring a new board member in to be chairman uh, they don't even know where the bathroom is, but I will happily uh, give that up uh, when the board says it's right. I'm uh, I'm at the board's uh, disposal. And I think there's a long, long history of both small private label and branding companies building up to a certain size, certain scale, and then they get gobbled up. It's just kind of the way of the world. So, you know, I'm interested in how you're thinking about that and are you building you know some people build a cell i talked to entrepreneurs who build a cell and then of course there are other people who you know want to build something and have the infrastructure to be a standalone company how is 
how how did you think about that topic? I'm uh look, I've been very clear uh at meetings with investors. I want to build a billion dollar. Sorry, I will build a billion dollar company. Um, it's really great. We worked as a as a board. Actually, I got to speak to the board and spend time with the board before I even got hired. Um, around what our vision, our our what our vision is for the business. And we had great debate. And I'm not going to tell you when I walked in there, all nine of us agreed. But I will tell you that when we left, all nine of us were in agreement. And we are building, first of its kind, billion-dollar, one-stop shop deli solution uh, provider. Now, I have a fiduciary duty to my shareholders and to the board. If someone wants to come in and offer me $50 a share, I have to bring that to the board. That is my responsibility. But I am building uh, to, to become a billion-dollar company. You see that in the capital infrastructure that we're making. You see that in the people uh, that we're bringing in. This is a company that we're looking to build. And if we're having this conversation in five years and this company has not achieved that goal, what do you think have been the reason? Like, what's the... What are the things that you worry about that could prevent you from attaining, you know, those lofty goals? I don't know. Five years from now is about a, a thousand years from now. So I, I don't even know how to answer that question. Look, our job is to run the playbook. 3C strategy, costs, controls, and culture. That's what's going to get us there. We have a roadmap. I've shared with the board, literally the billion dollar model, the same way I built a model half a dozen times for Mondelez when we acquired other companies and we build towards that model. I have, we have a game plan where as a leadership team, we know where that is and uh, we're going to do it. I could add another C to that, which would be capital, right? And so the question of capital and the ability to make acquisitions to help you accelerate the opportunity, you know, that, that, you know, building the billion dollar opportunity, what, where does that fit? And, you know, how do you feel about, I know you've built a lot of cash, but, you know, from an absolute perspective, you're not swimming in money in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, how do you think about capital as a constraint, as something that, um, you know, some that can and should be used to make acquisitions to help accelerate the the growth? Yeah. So uh, look again, everything's a, uh, you know, we're going to look at companies and each one will be different. Um, you know, we we're very uh, fortunate with the TNL acquisition. We had a combination of uh, the founder gave us a loan at a very favorable interest rate. Uh, our bank, we have a great relationship with our bank, m and Bank. They gave us a loan at a very favorable interest rate. We had cash. Um, I think there's a, a number of ways that we can do it. And it's going to be dependent on, on the size of the company. Um, so, um we talk about it. I talk about it often with our bankers. I talk about it often with uh, our team. Uh, Peter and Anthony are doing an incredible job building up that cash reserve for us, line of credit that we have. Um, but yeah, I think we'll look at it one by one. But look, it's going to be accretive. Um, one thing that uh, I had to get into, I had to acquire other companies at Mondelez. Uh, the, the cookie and cracker category wasn't growing. We needed growth. We needed to get into the places that consumers were going. I'm in that place now. The deli is exactly where we should be. And you see, I have tons of headroom for growth. So if I don't find the best acquisition that's accretive at a great price, 
That means I get to put more money into making our organic growth even faster. What's happening and what I'm really optimistic about, I'm seeing this. I probably go, I get a, I probably get a call a week. I probably take a trip a month. Um, the industry, again, going back to how we started this, is very fragmented, all private. Um, the owners of these businesses tend to be older in age. Um, what's happening is the kids or grandkids are not interested in the business and there's no place to go with it. So um, it seems there are a lot of opportunities. So the, 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 the TNL acquisition we bought at half times revenue. The, T, the CIF acquisition, we did it at 0.1 times revenue. This is not, I know the, uh, I don't have the same bank account I had when I was at Mondelez. So we're going to be very intentional about the decisions we're making. And in terms of culture and focus on quality and the premiumization of, of the category, how, how do you ensure that what you're acquiring, you know, has similar values and focuses that, that, you know, that you, that you're trying to instill here. It's absolute. It, it's absolute required. Look, Anthony Morello, the guy that built an incredible TNL business and olive branch business, he's our president. He's still here and he's doing an incredible job. We're a team. I'm not looking to acquire a company and the guy goes off into the sunset. Uh, you know, Ron Loeb, uh, one of the founders of CIF that we acquired this summer, he's like our best salesman. He's crushing it right now. So I, my job is to acquire companies to accelerate them. I'm not looking for someone to, to roll off into the sunset. I'm looking for companies that in time, but I'm going to help supercharge and you're going to help me supercharge the business. This is not you getting rid of your business. This is you getting help to accelerate our business. The one-stop shop, Daily Solutions. Well, Adam, we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about strategy. We've talked about culture. We've talked about margins. I mean, we've, we've covered a lot. Um, and I think you've kind of answered this question, but we, we're going to close with the question we always ask our public company guests. What do you think the most underappreciated thing about Mama's is at the current stock price? Huh. I don't know if it's one, but I, I, think it, I think it's really three things. The first one is it's undeniable the macro trends are in our favor that are only going to get stronger. Fresh, clean, easy to prepare meals, without a doubt, that is the number one thing. The number two thing is hopefully you've seen and we've spoken a little bit about today is this is a differentiated positioning. This is a differentiated uh, with Dan. The fact that we have our own manufacturing facilities, it's differentiated. And the third and the thing that might have been, been missing in the past that is now here to stay is we have this super clear, compelling, consistent strategy to be this one-stop shop. I think that trifecta uh, is, is outsized returns um, that, yeah, I, I'm banking on. All of my compensation is stock-based, uh, so I believe in it. I bought the stock myself uh, when I started. I, I, we're going to do this going to be awesome well uh i think people 
as they listen to this interview, will see why uh, when we first met that I was excited to have you on Compounders to talk about what you're building. Um, I am a sucker for anybody, you know, the big company guy coming in to, to make uh, something special with a smaller company. But it sounds like you had a great foundation um, and it's going to be really interesting to watch you try to attain those goals. So thanks again for being on Compounders. It was great to hear the story. No, thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate it. Cheers.